The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So many in the mountain climbing community would say the greatest cause of a climbing accident is not avalanches, it's not weather patterns changing very quickly or just the frigid cold. It's not falling through some hidden ice patch where there's a crevice beneath. But the most common cause of a climbing accident is complacency. It's an expert who knows better. They've done it a million times, but they let their guard down just a little bit, and it brings to some great accident. I want to tell you about a guy named John Long. He's a legendary mountain climber. Here's a picture of him and his climbing buddies. This is obviously, you can tell by those incredible clothes. This is from the 70s. And uh, they have just set a world record um, climbing this, this mountain behind them, that rock face. That's called El Capitan. That's in Yosemite. And it's considered by many the hardest climb in the world because it's just a sheer rock face, just straight up. And they climbed that in one day. It had been climbed before, but they climbed it in one day. So let's take another look. Here's another look at the side of that mountain. And they climbed that, where it comes to a point in the middle, that's where they climbed up. And most people, they have to camp out like at least once or twice along the way in a tent, let their muscles rest, and they sleep there just on the side of that mountain just for, for the night, and then they keep climbing. I don't know if you've ever tried like going to a climbing gym or something like that. If you don't have specific climbing muscles built, like there are muscles like in your forearms and your back and your legs, they fatigue so quickly, and after about, it doesn't matter how strong you are, 20 or 30 minutes, maybe an hour, you just can't hold on to anything anymore because there's these certain um, muscles that you have to have, and they climb that entire mountain face in one day. Now, if you're still not convinced that's an incredible feat, check out this next picture. That's what it's like to climb that right there. I'm nervous just looking at that picture, okay? I'm feeling a little uneasy. Okay, it's just straight up. You're holding on to these tiny little cracks on your way up. And so this guy, John Long, is a, a legend. He's written over 40 books. In fact, one of them is the, probably the bestseller, best climbing how-to book in the history of climbing. It's literally called How to Rock Climb. He literally wrote the book on how to climb. And he's, he's famous for all of these incredibly dangerous exploits and all these things, climbing without ropes. and I mean, all these crazy places all over the world, North Pole, the Alps, all these places everywhere that he's famous for climbing. And a couple years ago, it spread through the mountain climbing community that he had fallen. And he had fallen and had, he barely, should probably not have survived, but he had a, a huge broken leg. I mean, it was a very grisly injury, compound fracture, and it just kind of went through the whole mountain climbing world. This is a legendary guy who fell. And of all places, like where did he, was he like on the, uh, like upside down climbing somewhere in some crazy part of the world? No, he fell in Los Angeles in a climbing gym. Of all places that he's climbed around the world. I mean, it's like the safest, 
you know, sterile environment. There's mats on the ground, and you've got all these steel hooks all the way up to put your, your ropes in. There's, there's trainers everywhere. And of all places, that's where he fell. That's where he had an accident and had, was in the hospital for a long time, multiple surgeries. And it just goes to show you that no one is exempt from falling. No one is exempt. In fact, when it comes to the idea of complacency, the most likely candidate to become complacent is the expert. The most likely candidate to become complacent and then when complacency goes to full bloom, it's just, it's all out neglect. The most likely candidate is the expert. Why? Because man, they... They know it's routine. They, people come to them for input and they kind of get complacent in their knowledge they, and they get a little bit less careful because they're relying on their expertise and their skills. This is one of the most dangerous obstacles we can face. We can climb all the way up the mountain, all the way to our summit, our goal, all the way to victory, only to get complacent and tumble down on the other side. It's sometimes the mighty, the people that are looked to, that you're surprised that they had climbed such great heights, but then in their life they plateau and then decline. The person who has to watch for complacency the most is the expert. Now we're going to watch in the story of Nehemiah. We're going to learn from him. We're going to be looking in the very end of the story, Nehemiah chapter 13. And, um, but to really appreciate this last chapter in the book of Nehemiah, we have to understand all this background. A couple things about the story in Nehemiah, this last chapter. First of all, it closes the whole story. It's the end of the book of Nehemiah, but it's also really more like an epilogue because between chapter 12 and chapter 13 is about 15, maybe 20, maybe 25, 30 years. I mean, there's a spread between 12 and then it comes back to it and shows us what happens at the end. It's kind of like an epilogue. Like if, if you've ever seen a movie... And at the very end, they resolve the conflict, but you're just kind of wanting to know what happened to the characters. And then before the credits roll, they show you a picture and it tells you, well, this person went on to live for 103 years on a farm, and this person invented electricity. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's like a, it's an epilogue. It tells you what happens at the end. Well, we get to the end of Nehemiah, and it gives us one last look at what happens in the end. Now, here's where we're at in the story. If you're just joining us, let's get you a little, caught up, a little bit caught up. The story of Nehemiah takes place about 450 years before the time of Jesus. It takes place in Jerusalem. And at this point, Jerusalem is not a thriving city. It has been conquered and it's rubble. And the people are rising up to rebuild it. They've rebuilt the temple. And in the story of Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the walls. And Nehemiah is really leading the way against all these obstacles and chiefly these two villains, Sanballat and Tobiah. And so we've been studying all the way up to about halfway through Nehemiah where they've built the wall. That's where we were at last week. And the next section is this whole section. They've built the wall. They celebrate the wall. And then in this next section, they're now rebuilding the community. They're rebuilding the spiritual foundation. They're making sure that they're truly following God again. They're rebuilding the community. That's what we're going to be starting to study in this next series. But we're jumping all the way ahead to the last chapter to see how the book of Nehemiah closes. But there's something else you've got to know about this chapter that's so critical. Nehemiah 13 is really the last chapter, in a sense, of the whole story of the Old Testament. 
So you've got the Old Testament. It's really not laid out purely chronologically. The Old Testament is laid out by genres. You've got law, you've got poetry, you've got prophecy, and there's this one section that's history. And this chapter, through the whole chronology of the Old Testament, this is the final chapter of their history. Nehemiah 13 closes. You've got a little over 400 years of nothing. Silence. And then when it picks up again in the New Testament, it opens up and there's this young girl who gets visited by an angel. Her name is Mary. And even though she's a virgin, she's told that she's going to give birth to a son and that he should, she should call his name Jesus. Chapter 13, then nothing, then Jesus. So this is not just closing out Nehemiah, it's closing out the entire saga of the Old Testament. So let's review because this is so critical. Thousands of years before this chapter 13 of Nehemiah, God sets aside this one people group. It's this one nation called Israel. He says, I'm going to set you aside, and here's his purpose. He says, I want the entire world to know who their creator is. I want them to know who I am, so I'm setting you aside to demonstrate who I am. So he gives gives them these laws that reflect his holiness. So people can see their holiness and it reflects God's holiness. So you remember Moses up on Mount Sinai getting the two tablets, gets these ten commandments, and, and the chief first ten commandment is make sure you do not have any other false gods. There's only one true God. I am the true living God. Have no other gods before me. Have no other idols. That's the first chief commandment. You have to be worshipers of me alone. They get these commands, they're told how to worship God, things like set aside the Sabbath, do no work on the Sabbath once every seven days, set aside this as worship to me so people can see my holiness. In fact, breaking the Sabbath was actually a capital offense. That's how serious they took the worship of God and God alone. He takes them into the promised land. And in this promised land, he says, I'm setting aside this promised land. This is where you're, I'm going to establish you. You're going to thrive and all the nations will see your worship. And the goal is hopefully they will be drawn into Israel and become worshipers of God as well. But he warns them. He says, be careful of the false gods in the cultures all around you. In fact, he tells them, he says, be careful not to intermarry with any of the cultures around you. Now, this is so critical to get this. What he's talking about, this is not an interracial marriage situation that he's talking about. He's talking about an interspiritual marriage. He's saying, man, if there's someone else and their family worships idols, don't blend them with your family because then your kids will be caught between the one true living God and these idols. He's saying, be careful of this interspiritual marriage. It's not an interracial thing. In fact, for an example, he says, says, don't marry any of the Moabites because they're idol worshipers. And you see this one woman who's a Moabite. She's from Moab. Her name is Ruth. But she wants to become part of Israel. She wants to worship God. And so she's brought in and the the scripture praises this marriage she has with this Jewish man. In fact, she becomes the great-grandmother of King David himself which puts her as an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So what he's warning against is be careful of spiritual intermarriage. You've got to, the whole hope of the world is based on what's going to come out of this people group that he's setting aside. So what's the story? How does this play out? They go into the promised land. That first generation, okay, they, I mean, they, they, they've got the law. I mean, that first generation, they stay true to God, right? No idols in that first generation. No, they fall into idolatry immediately. God's trying to 
punish, he doesn't he wants to draw them back to himself so he sends in another army that that defeats them in battle and then puts this oppression over them and these taxes and they cry out to God please they repent to God and he sends a deliverer and he frees them from that they get their freedom and then they pass that information on to their next generation okay they learn their lesson right immediately the next generation falls into idolatry once again, someone defeats them and, and they, they oppress them and then they're taxing them and they call out and they repent and then God frees them again and then the next generation, they're going to get it, right? And over and over and over, every single generation breaks their covenant with God and falls into worshiping false, fake idols and other gods. Eventually, they ask for kings, and these kings are supposed to be, okay, we'll have a king, and he'll lead us towards God. And you get to the, one of the first kings, a guy named Solomon. And you see in these kings, each of the kings lead them into idolatry. And Solomon, did he, did he marry a wife that was an idol worshiper? No, he married hundreds of wives that were idol worshipers. To the point that he had hundreds of wives, he had to build false temples to false gods there in Jerusalem. And it spirals down from there. And the kings continue to lead them. You just keep going generation, hundreds of years, king after king after king, leading them deeper into idolatry until you get one king who's so wicked, he actually drags idols into God's temple itself. And finally, after God, all of God's patience and all of his mercy for generation and all of his grace, warning them with prophets, finally a prophet comes who warns them. God is, is finished. He's not just going to defeat you in battle. He's going to allow you to be conquered. This is what Jeremiah said in chapter 25. A prophet came and said this to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I'll devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. He warns them ahead of time. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, they're going to come in, and they're not just going to defeat you in battle and tax you and oppress you. They're going to conquer you. This, your cities will be rubble, and he's going to take you back into exile. He's going to actually remove you from the promised land. He goes on to say this. He gives Jeremiah this potent, terrifying metaphor for what he's about to do. Look at what this says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord to the Lord sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. God says, I'm going to even give you a picture of what's coming. He says, Jeremiah, take this cup. He says, this cup is a cup of my wrath. I've poured my wrath into this cup and make them drink down my wrath and experience it to that degree. What a terrifying picture of a cup of wrath. The promised land is empty. It's rubble. God's people are in Babylon, a conquered people. And it looks like the whole story's ended. Looks like that's all. That was it. He's done. But then the Persians, they conquer the Babylonians, and, and all of a sudden a Persian king, he sends some Jewish people back. 
just some Jewish people living again in, in the promised land and, and in the rubble. And then all of a sudden, a guy named Ezra goes back and, and they actually rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah is sent back from the Persians and he doesn't just rebuild, continue rebuilding, he rebuilds the wall and then the wall is, is finished and it looks like, wow, okay, they're there and now they're rebuilding the rest of the city and now they're establishing and they're starting to worship God again and they reestablish this spiritual community. And we see right as you get to the very, very end of the Old Testament, you see what a powerful moment of redemption. It looked like all was lost, like he was done with those people because generation after generation after generation, they had fallen away and they had followed idols. But at that very end you see this redemption man something's happening again man don't you love redemption stories we love stories like that we love those movies that it's just painful all the way to the end and then the end makes it all better you know we love those type of movies i uh my wife and i rebecca and i are introducing our daughter to um disney movies and so um the first movie that rebecca wanted to show scarlet was cinderella you know classic and so I'm like, well, Cinderella, I mean, all right, I guess I'll watch. I feel like I'm a dude, but, you know, I'll watch Cinderella, okay? And it's for my daughter. And so we sit down, and, you know, Cinderella, it's one of those redemption stories. I mean, it's hard to watch. I mean, they're just, their stepmother and stepsisters, they're just cruel to Cinderella. And she goes to the ball, and she's got, you know, the glass slippers, and then she leaves one, and then there's, well, you have this glimmer of hope. Well, maybe he'll, the prince will find her with the glass slipper, but then when the duke comes to the door, they lock Cinderella all the way up into the tower, and you're like, she's never going to get to try on the shoe. And then the mice are trying to get the, the, the key all the way up to the top. And then, you know, the stepsisters, they're trying on the shoe, and then finally the mice get her down, and just as the duke's leaving, Cinderella comes charging down, and she's like, the duke, the duke, tr- let Cinderella try on the shoe, and then, and then the music is swelling, and he goes and he takes the shoe to Cinderella, and what happens? The stepmother trips the guy, it crashes and splinters all to the ground, and when all hope is lost, the music swells, and Cinderella's like, but I have the other shoe! And goes rushing in, okay? And at this point, Scarlett has left the room about 20 minutes ago. I'm leaning in on my seat. And Rebecca looks over, she's like, are you crying? No, no, I'm not crying. What's happening here? Okay, we we love our redemption stories, okay? They just, they draw us in. Okay, now now this story here with Nehemiah, this is not just a redemption of like a bad season, okay, a bad season of life, you know, it's not just dealing with one bad lifetime. Man, this is like, this is a season, this is generations, this is a saga that finds its redemption after hundreds and hundreds of years. This is after generations and judges and kings and battles and, and, and successes and failures and, and, and all of a sudden you've had this redemption after maybe 1,500 to 2,500 years in the making, you have this redemption. It ends in, in chapter 12. They've rebuilt the spiritual community and then we get chapter 13, the epilogue. Let's see what happens. Chapter 13, verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, 
prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. God. All right, this is the epilogue. Okay, Nehemiah sets it up. He's like, okay, remember when he first stood before the king and said, hey, can I go to Jerusalem and help rebuild it? The king's first question was, when will you be back? And we find out from this that he stayed in Jerusalem for 12 years. And about the 12th year, he returns. And sometime later, man, this might be 10 years later. I mean, he just got back to the king after 12 years. It's not going to be next month. 10 years, maybe 15 years, he returns. He's coming back to Jerusalem. So this is easily 20, 25, 30 years from when they actually had rebuilt the wall. He's now coming back and seeing the state of Jerusalem. Some estimate that Nehemiah at this point might be in his mid to late 60s. And he shows up and he comes to the temple and here's what he finds. The high priest, a guy named Eliashib, and this is a guy that you read about throughout Nehemiah. He was there building the wall with Nehemiah. His sons are priests. This is like the spiritual royalty of of the day in Jerusalem. And Eliashib had pulled out these chambers where they stored all the offerings to God. It goes on to tell us that this is actually part of, these are also part of the contributions that support all the people that work in the temple. And it goes on to tell us that they had to leave the temple because there's no food for them and they had to go back to their farms and farms so that they could even support their families so that now the temple's in disrepair. And he did all that because he let Tobiah move in. Who's Tobiah? He's one of the rivals, the arch enemies we've been reading about in this entire book. He's moved out the offerings to God and makes Tobiah, allows Tobiah to make it his home. In other words, the offerings that were to God are removed. So Tobiah turns God's house into his house. And why was he allowed to do this? Because Eliashib is related to Tobiah. After all this time, this high priest lets his family intermarry with this enemy of God and this enemy of, of Israel. Okay, look what else, look what happens. Look what Nehemiah does. This is verse 8. And I was very angry. Yeah, I bet. I, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with, with the grain offering and the frankincense. Do you hear what that says? 65-year-old Nehemiah, you know what he does? He kicks open the door of Tobiah and he starts picking up his furniture and throws it out. Opens up Tobiah's closet, grabs his clothes, dumps it outside the chamber. He starts taking pictures and wings it out the door. He's throwing everything out. He cleans out the entire thing personally. He says, clean this up. Cleanse it. He fumigates the place. He wants no scent of Tobiah left in that place. Look what happens next. That's not the only thing he found when he returned to Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food 
Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, now watch what he says to them. What is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying you're breaking the Sabbath? Are you kidding me? You were the ones who picked up the rubble and put it into a wall. Do you know how we got that rubble? By doing what you're doing. It's like, how of all people you saw the destruction, you, you saw it laid waste. What is wrong with you? How could you possibly now go back to that since you've seen the damage of breaking the laws of God? He's incensed. But that's not all. Jump down to verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God and marrying foreign women? Now again, this is not an interracial issue. This is an interspiritual issue. He says, from the beginning, you were warned the damage it's going to do to your families and to, to what God has called us to be if we're blending our families together with people who worship the true God with people who worship idols. He said, look at your children. He says, your children can't even speak the language of Judah. Again, that's not a, an ethnicity issue. What that issue is, is in this time in history, if they don't know the language of Judah, they can't study the law. He's saying, look, how could you do this? We've seen what this does. Solomon did this. We saw that torpedoed Israel. Look what else he finds. Notice, it's interesting. Did you notice that he got violent? Cursed people? He started beat, beat them up. Okay, he pulled out their hair, which is kind of weird. Okay, get over here. You know, get out of here. Okay, he gets violent. And the scripture's not necessarily condoning that, if you're getting ideas in your mind. It's telling that that's what's happened, and it's hard to blame the guy. Right? Okay, there's more. Verse 28. And one of the sons, Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. 
Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. The end. That's the end of the book. That's the end of the Old Testament. It closes. That's the most depressing epilogue you can imagine. Okay? You get all the way to the end. Not just the redemption of a generation, the redemption of an entire people. Thousands of years of history all building to this moment. They're redeemed. They've been redeemed from all the sin that they did. They rebuild the the temple, the walls, the the spiritual community. And, And Nehemiah finally goes back and he comes back a number of years later. And what does he find them doing? The exact things their forefathers had done to get them conquered to begin with. You end Nehemiah and you end the Old Testament on a really depressing, hopeless note. Is it even possible for God's people to follow him? Because not a single generation has got it right. Not one. And you know what's the saddest of all in this whole story? Is you see who brought it on Israel and who Nehemiah pegs as the key problem? The high priests. The priesthood. They're actually decided to marry Sanballat and Tobiah's families. The ones who cursed and plotted and planned to do violence to stop the building of the wall. So here's what we walk away and one of the things we learn from this is when it comes to complacency, the greatest candidate for complacency are the experts. You know that guy John Long I told you about who climbed all those incredible things and then fell in a climbing gym? Do you know what led to him falling? He had forgot to finish tying the knot on his harness. Step one that they teach every single beginner before they ever get on a wall ever. He's written the book about it And he forgot to finish tying his knot and he fell and almost died. The greatest candidate for complacency is experts. In fact, here's kind of how it works itself out. Starts with expertise. You know, I've got this. Man, now people are coming to me for input. I I teach this stuff. I write the book about this stuff. I've got it. It's now routine. It's now second nature, which makes me a little complacent. Now I don't think through it. I'm not as careful. I'm not as watchful. And then that eventually makes me apathetic. Nah, I don't care about that stuff. I actually think it. I don't just fall into it. I actually think it. Nah, that's for beginners. I don't need that stuff. I'm past all that. That's, I've re- reached this place where I don't really need it anymore. And apathy will bring full-blown neglect. This is how whatever the expertise is in any field, the mighty fall because they, start as, they get, become the experts. They think they have the secret sauce. They think they've got to the tenure. They've reached this place that they believe they will always be there and they get complacent and then they get apathetic and then they, get, they neglect and they plateau and then they decline. What's the expertise that you feel like you have? What's your greatest 
skill, your greatest gift, the thing that you're the best at, it's in that area that you are the greatest candidate for complacency. But you know what's really especially on my heart this morning? Is let's talk about spiritual complacency. I mean, how could they saw the destruction of Jerusalem? How could they possibly have gone back to their sin? But we've seen the destruction of sin even more on the person of Jesus Christ. How could we possibly go back to our sin? Can we have a conversation with, if your expertise is that you're a spiritual leader, you teach others. You lead ministry teams. You're a community group leader. You have friends that come to you for spiritual advice. You've been in leadership before. You've been on a, a church leadership team or you've been on an elder team or you've been, a, you've been a, a teacher of Bible studies or you've served on a deacon board or a trustee team or a board of directors. You're a spiritual leader. Can we just stop for a second? Can we all lean in if that's where, where you're at? Because you're the greatest candidate for spiritual complacency. So can we just have a moment of brokenness and kind of lean in for a second and ask ourselves some tough questions? Man, have I slipped into the idea of, oh, you know, I've got this. I've got my routine that I do, and that's why I'm so healthy spiritually. Man, that's why I, I put on ministry. I'm not the recipient of it. I help others. I don't receive help. I give instruction. I don't I give instruction. I don't receive instruction. I mean, can I take a moment and say, when was the last time I allowed someone to speak into a blind spot, a spiritual blind spot in my life, and I was broken and humbled and didn't make excuses? I didn't spiritually rationalize it. I just I wasn't arrogant and self-righteous back or prideful. I just received it knowing I am a broken person before God. When was the last time I came into the community of Christians and instead of saying, let me analyze and critique and and see if they did it right, I leaned forward and said, God, I need you to speak through this no matter what it is in my life today. When was the last time I opened the Bible instead of taking more nuggets of information and, and piling that in of things I'm learning, instead I read it waiting for the Holy Spirit to show me how I need to grow in the Lord on the edge of my seat, broken before God. When was the last time I wept before God because of my sin? Because today I still fall so far short of the glory of God. Christian, do you know that if God had mercy on you and judged you today and said, I'm going to erase everything up to except this day, what you've lived so far this morning, I will just judge you on that. Do you know that you've already done enough today to deserve an eternity in hell? And that you and I are desperate to go before Jesus Christ and say, I need you today just like I need you before. Soften my heart. I go back to my first love. God, please do not let me slip into complacency or apathy. And some of us need to to repent and say, God, I've slowed down. I've not fought against sin as hard as I once did, but I run after you like a racer running for the finish line, urging forward. It doesn't matter what season of life, what age, I'm running after you because I am never done until I'm greeted by you and you whisper in my ear, well done, good and faithful servant. Christian, spiritual leader, do you realize you are the greatest candidate for complacency. And we've not just seen the desolation of a city. We've seen the desolation of the Son of God. How could we ever return 
to the sin that we once knew. Do you know what Jesus did? He said, I'm starting a new covenant. You know, we get to the end of Nehemiah, and you know what we learn? We don't just need more Nehemiahs in this world because Nehemiah wasn't enough. We close the book on the Old Testament and what we need is something greater because it's hopeless without him. And it opens up to one, one greater than Nehemiah who went into the temple and he cleaned it out, tipped over tables. And when he saw the broken and the lost and the sinful, what did he do? Did he exact violence on them? Did he curse them and beat them and pull out their hair? No, he allowed them to do violence to him. And they cursed him. And they beat him. And they pulled out his hair. And they ran him out of the city and they nailed him to a cross. And you know what he was doing? He told us exactly what he was doing because the night before all that happened, he brought his disciples around him and he poured a cup. And he said, all of you drink of this because it's a new covenant. You need to drink the cup. And the Lord handed them a cup. And they drank the cup. He says, this symbolizes my blood that was shed. And he broke the bread. And he says, this symbolizes my broken body. Something new is starting today. He was starting a new covenant where no longer are we judged by God from the outside in. No, Jesus is going to pay the price for our sins and he's going to change us from the inside out. He's doing something new. And he goes out into the garden that night before he's arrested and he cries out to God, sweating droplets of blood. He says, God, would you take this cup from me? And you know what cup he was talking about? The cup of wrath that he would drink down to the dregs for you and for me that we deserved. Christian, Christian leader, seasoned Christian, longtime Christian, today is a day for brokenness. And to return to Jesus saying, I need you just as much today as I did yesterday and to repent and confess our complacency. And you may be here and you may be a lost soul. Today is the day to receive this cup, this new covenant where Jesus paid for all your sins on the cross. You can receive forgiveness today by putting your faith in Jesus. We're going to end our service this morning with a time of communion. And these elements, it's a cup of juice and it's a piece of bread. And we take this like all of our Christian forefathers before us, and it's a symbol of his shed blood and his broken body. We're proclaiming, this is for me and I need it. And so in just a moment, I'm going to invite you. You're going to come into these two middle aisles. You can come forward or backwards. There's tables in the back and there's tables up front. You're going to come up and you're going to take the juice and the bread and you're going to take it and then go back to your seat. We're going to close with a song. And some of us are just going to come forward, believers. You're going to come forward, you're going to take the plastic cup and a piece of bread. And if, that's, if you're a believer, take this moment now and confess your need for brokenness and get your heart right now. Others of you are saying, look, I'm not sure where I'm at with Jesus and so I'm, gonna, I'm not sure I'm ready to make that declaration and that's fine. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're journeying with us. Respect that you're here and you're, you're being honest with yourself but I'd ask you to hold off from taking communion this morning because this is a proclamation that Jesus' death counts for you. But you may be here and saying, I'm ready to make that proclamation. I'm ready for today for the first time. Put my faith in Jesus. Accept his forgiveness and accept that his death was for me. So if today is that first time you're making that declaration, when you come forward, the rest of us are going to be taking these plastic cups, but there's a couple wooden cups here. And if you're making that decision for the first time, take that wooden cup as a reminder that today was the day you put your faith in Jesus. 
We're going to close this time partaking of the cup of the new covenant and his broken body. These powerful symbols of what he did for us. Let's proclaim this together. You can begin coming forward now. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.